Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. I am thrilled to be able to conclude our Messy Church series that we've been in this month of August today. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17. And if you need a copy of scripture, our fine ushers are coming down the aisle right now. You can throw up your hand and they would love to hand you a Bible. And as you are looking for Luke 17, uh, many of you know that um, I've been gone the last couple weeks in Turkey. And I know that with all the recent events, there were a number of you that were very concerned that we were going to Turkey. And so I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you to all of you who prayed for us over the last two weeks. We got back uh, right around midnight on Friday night. So I had yesterday to hang with the family and uh, Lots of energy and ready to go this morning. But uh, this is the group that, that we got to take, and it was an amazingly diverse group of people. Uh, we had a number of pastors out of Orlando. We had almost half the group coming from various parts of Australia. We had a pastor from Myanmar. We had a pastor from South Africa. We had some folks from West Michigan, some people from Central. And it was just a, a tremendous experience that we got to have. And in light of all of the things that have happened in Turkey over the last six weeks, uh, we were like the only group there. I mean, it was like we went to sites and we had entire sites to ourselves. Nobody else there. It's like, what do we want to do? We can do anything. There ain't anybody else here. And uh, so uh, we never once felt unsafe. We spent a lot of time you know, really discerning God's, God's will for us to be able to go on this trip. And, and God never promises safety. But he does promise to go before us and, and to call us in the direction he wants us to go. And so I uh, just wanted to say uh, just a, a huge thank you to all of you who were fervently praying. We got a lot of messages while we were there. Um, some things were happening in the very east side of Turkey. It would be like something happening in Iowa. You know, but people who don't know Turkey think it's happening right where you're at. But we appreciated all the care and concern and all the prayers and just wanted to say thank you uh, to all of you who were praying for us. It was an amazing trip. God met us uh, in incredible ways. And I uh, just want to say thank you to that. Uh, and then the other thing I just want to mention before we jump into this teaching today is something that we were going to let you know about two weeks ago, but we had like another announcement we had to kind of tackle on that Sunday. So uh, this is something that is going to be happening here at Central on September 19th. And I'm going to be doing a, a seminar. It's going to be a five-hour deal. We're going to go from 10 to 3. Uh, it only costs $10. It just covers your lunch. And I'm basically going to be walking people through the art of communication. What are the best communicators in the world doing? What are the things that I tried to implement as a communicator myself? And we were originally going to be doing this just for the 65 churches in the West Michigan district. So this is a, a district-sponsored event. And in talking with Chris Conrad, I said, listen, you know, let's, let's, let's blow this thing way out. Let's get as many people involved. And Chris goes, absolutely. And so this is for um, pastors. This is for business leaders. This is for teachers. This is if any of you communicate in any way whatsoever. I'm going to be doing what I just call, and it's been said in other ways too, this 20-80 principle, which is I'm going to teach in those five hours the 20% of the communication process that I believe makes 80% of the difference. And so I'm going to be walking through um, how do you put together a sermon? How do you put together a presentation? What are the things that, that you want to keep in mind as you're putting these things together? How do we grow in our ability to communicate with great power, with great effectiveness, to really connect with our community? Uh, and so you can, if you're interested in just wanting to find out more, there's a two-minute promo video that you can go to just on our website, centralwesleyan.org forward slash 
events will get you there, or you can also do forward slash art of communication. And all you do is just register online. You pay the day of. Again, it's a catered lunch. That's what the $10 is going to. And it's an opportunity if any of you just want to grow in your ability to communicate, to teach, to present. Um, if there are any other pastors in here, former pastors, um, you're more than welcome to be a part of this as well. So that's going to be September 19th and just wanted to inform you of that as well. Alrighty, so Luke 17. I've got to tell you that I have been so excited about this teaching. Craig and I spent a lot of time, months out, working towards this series of Messy Church, and today we get to conclude, and boy, oh boy, do we get to conclude with a great story. So Luke chapter 17, if you've got one of the Bibles, page 1050. Uh, we're only going to be reading, it is what, nine verses or so, looking at verse 11 of Luke chapter 17. And here we go. And by the way, we're going to be concluding with communion today. So this is why we did a shortened singing up front. We'll come back to singing. We'll come back to some time of worship. So this is going to kind of be in the service of leading us into a time of communion. Verse 11. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. So we've got Samaritans involved. We've got leprosy involved. We'll come back to those in a few moments. I just want to highlight the absolutely rare occurrence of what just happened here. They called Jesus by name. Now, for us, we're so accustomed to the gospel stories saying, and Jesus went here, and Jesus taught that, and Jesus did this, that we don't ever recognize in the gospel narrative, Jesus is almost never addressed as Jesus. It was an insult in many ways. A person of this dignity, a rabbi like this, to be addressed by his first name, nobody does this. And yet, it only happens a couple times in the text, in the gospel stories. And when it happens, you are supposed to go, whoa, what just happened here? And what we recognize in this moment are these 10 men with leprosy. They are desperate. They are desperate for Jesus' attention, for Jesus to do something on their behalf. And they call Jesus by name. And as in any situation, Jesus isn't rattled, he's calm, he takes it in. And then we read this next. Verse 14, when he saw them, Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Miraculously, they're on their way, they go and they are cleansed. And then it says, verse 15, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to them, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So we've got this bizarre story where you have these 10 men and they are uh, people of leprosy. They've contracted leprosy. Now, when we hear leprosy, we immediately hear that through what we call leprosy today, namely Hansen's disease. But in the biblical time period, a whole host of skin disorders could qualify, if you will, for being leprosy. I mean, even psoriasis would be considered leprosy. 
And people didn't have a really good handle on skin diseases in the ancient world. They didn't know, like, are you going to infect other people? Like, how is this contracted? What are we supposed to do? And so if you had any kind of skin disorder whatsoever, you would go to the priest in Jerusalem and the priests in Jerusalem would look at you and they would look at your symptoms or they would talk about your symptoms. They'd look at your skin. They'd ask you some questions. And if they deemed you a leprous person, you are now removed from the community. You are put into a separate village in a place where you had to wear ratty, torn clothes. You had to wrap something around the lower part of your face. And if by any chance anyone who was clean, did not have leprosy, came in your proximity, you had to shout out, not just say under your breath, you had to go, unclean, unclean, unclean. You had to identify yourself as someone who was disconnected from the community, that you were an untouchable person. Now, we find out in the story that Jesus interacts with these people of leprosy. Now, if it hadn't already been a story earlier in Luke where Jesus interacts with a man who is leprous, this would be a shocking moment to the early readers. But it is a shocking moment. It's a shocking moment following another shocking moment, namely that Jesus touched a man with leprosy. And the understanding was if you were clean and you touched somebody who was unclean, then you contract their uncleanliness. And yet earlier in the story, Jesus touches someone who is unclean. And not only does Jesus not become unclean, Jesus remains clean and the unclean becomes clean as well. And we find out that Jesus is someone who is not someone who walks away from someone who is on the outside, someone who is unclean, someone who is in need. Jesus goes right in and he touches the person and they are healed. And we get this earlier in Luke. So now all of a sudden we get 10 people who are leprous. Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. And yes, it is shocking. It's not as shocking because we've already been introduced to it. But the thing that's even more shocking than what just happens is the fact that the person is identified who came back as a Samaritan. You could not find a more hated person in Jewish society than a Samaritan. Like a Samaritan was worse than the Romans. Like that foreign pagan oppressive empire that ruled over you, that taxed you, maybe at least 50%, in some cases maybe up to 70% who were absolutely ruling over you, shaming you, discrediting you. Like the Samaritan was worse than they were. And you go, how in the world was that possible? Well, it started earlier in the biblical story in the Hebrew scriptures. It started here when Assyria came in and took out the Northern Kingdom in 722 BC. Assyria had a foreign policy that went like this. We're gonna conquer a people and instead of just unilaterally moving all the people to a different location, we're gonna simply spread them out throughout our empire, force them to intermarry with other people groups. Their bloodline will thin and they will be gone eventually. And so what the Assyrians did is they did this, but when they took the Jews out of the northern kingdom in an area known as Samaria, they also left 
the vine dressers, the farmers, people to work the land and to repopulate the area. The Assyrians took people from other parts of the world that they had conquered, brought them into the area of Samaria, and then they started intermarrying together. And now all of a sudden, these people who are from Samaria are intermarrying with the Gentiles and they will eventually receive the title half Jew because they're no longer fully Jewish. Then what happens is that right underneath here, you have the period of Babylon, and then Babylon comes on the scene, and during the Babylonian exile, you have the Jews from Judea, the Judah, the further south in Samaria, they get taken with a different foreign policy to Babylon as an entire community. Then the Persians will come along, they'll knock out the Babylonians. Cyrus the Great will say, okay, you Jews, those of you who want to return to the land of Israel, you can do that and you can rebuild your sacred structure. And so under the leadership of Zerubbabel, you have the first wave of Jewish exiles. They come back to the area of Judah, south of Samaria, and they start rebuilding the temple. Well, those who were left in the land in the northern kingdom during the Assyrian time period, they go, well, we are part of you. And the Jews that came back from Babylon that settled in Jerusalem, in Judah, that became known as Judea, they go, oh, we're sorry, uh, you're no longer one of us. You've been intermarrying with all those Gentiles. You're not true Jews anymore. And the ones who are in Samaria are like, but whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hold on, like, we had to stay in the land. We were not exiled like you were. We stayed in the land. We have made sure that we've hold down the fort while you've been gone. And now you come back and you think you're better than us? And the Jews basically said, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Because we haven't been intermarrying like you have. And then all of a sudden, there's a tension that began to, to arise. So much so that when the Jews in Jerusalem began to rebuild the temple, it was the Samaritans from the north who came and opposed the rebuilding of the temple. And it started centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And a number of events happened. But let me just tell you one of the events that culminated in 6 A.D., during the time of the Passover, when Jews from all over the world are supposed to stream up to Jerusalem to celebrate God, a bunch of Samaritans snuck into the temple in the middle of the night and laid human bones on the temple porch, defiling the temple and ruining all of Passover for that year. The whole temple was considered unclean and nobody was allowed to go up there. And it was like, man, the animosity went through the roof. And it got so bad after that, that there were actually prayers prayed in the synagogue, in some synagogues on a daily basis that went something like this. Dear God, don't let a single Samaritan ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that's when you know you hate somebody. <laughs> when you pray every day that they go to hell. In John chapter 8, Jesus is confronted by a bunch of people. They say the two nastiest derogatory things you could say to a prophet of God. The first is they call him demon-possessed. I mean, when you're claiming to speak on behalf of God and they go, well, yeah, you are speaking on behalf of a power. It's just called Satan. Uh, that's a bit derogatory. But the other thing is they call Jesus a Samaritan. It's the worst thing you could call somebody in the ancient world if you were a Jew. And yet Jesus heals a Samaritan. It is a shocking, scandalous 
grace of Jesus that he would reach out to someone who was on the outside, someone who would never see themselves, who would never be welcomed into a religious place. Jesus goes to them. He has empathy, compassion for them, and he heals them. And it is shocking grace. And it's nothing Jesus introduced to the story. It's been part of the story all along. You see, when you come to Luke 17, you start reading a story like this, there is something else that's supposed to pop in your mind if you know the biblical story. Because there is actually another story that sits right behind this story that we're talking about today. There's a story from the Hebrew scriptures that has all of these different parallels between the story of what we're talking about today with Jesus. And by the way, what's fascinating is Jesus has already referenced this story earlier in Luke. He does this in Luke 4 when he is in a religious place. He's in a synagogue in Nazareth. He references this other story and they want to kill him as a result of it. Just for mentioning the story. And you go, what story did he reference that they wanted to kill him for? It's a story from 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a story about a guy by the name of Naaman. Naaman is the commander of the arch nemesis army or enemy of Israel at this time. The Philistines were always the bane of Israel's existence, but there was another army as well. And it was the army of Aram, the Aramean army. Now Aram is present day Syria. And the commander of all their forces is a guy by the name of Naaman. And on one of Naaman's Um, kind of, well, he kind of just comes into the land. Like he's just wreaking havoc. He comes into the land of Israel. He's conquering people. And on one occasion, a girl is kidnapped. Now, whether Naaman kidnaps her, we don't know, or whether or not she was just kidnapped and then Naaman took her, but she became a slave in his household. And so she's in his household and Naaman contracts leprosy. And and I don't know how bad it is, but apparently it's really bad because he's getting really desperate. And in the midst of his despair, that there is no hope for him, his skin is just eating away, this girl says to Naaman's wife in the household, hey, where I came from, there was a prophet by the name of Elisha, and God works powerfully, the God of Israel works powerfully in the life of Elisha. I really think your husband should go talk to Elisha. And Naaman, who is the military commander of this army that is at war with Israel, gets into Israel, gets behind enemy lines, shows up at the doorstep of Elisha's household and begs and pleads with him to heal him. And Elisha says, hey, I'm not going to do it on the spot, but I, I want you to go to the Jordan River. And this is where the story picks up. 2 Kings 5. Verses 14 and 15. So he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before Elisha and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. It is a story of shocking, scandalous grace that God would reach out to Naaman through the prophet Elisha in order to heal the military military commander 
of their arch nemesis at this time. And you go, okay, well, that's, that's an amazing story. And I can see how like the scandalous grace of God is on display. But what does this have to do with the Jesus story other than that connection? Well, actually quite a bit because there are five major connections between these two stories. Here's the first one. Both events occurred in the same area. See, this is what's huge about the biblical text. Jesus doesn't do anything random. The location always matters. In fact, you could argue, if you understand kind of the geography of the Bible, that 90 to 95% of stories are predicated simply on their location. Just knowing the geography unloads like vistas of understanding about what's going on. Let me show you where this is taking place. These stories are taking place in this area. This is in the northern part of Israel. And the first one, the Naaman story, took place at Dotan. This is where Elisha is living at the time. Now, it tells us that for the Jesus story, he's on the border of Galilee and Samaria, which is right here as well. And Gene is where the tradition holds that Jesus healed the 10 men. If it was there, we're talking about a whole distance of five miles. This happens within five miles of each other. So we're talking about the same area. That's the first connection. The second is this. Both had leprosy, right? We already know that we've already mentioned that in both stories. You're like, yes, that's the common denominator between the two. The third is, get this, they both had to go somewhere else for healing. They weren't healed on the spot. Now, Naaman was sent to the Jordan River. This trek in order to get there is about 25 miles. Not too bad when you're the commander of a military uh, army because you have a chariot. So it's still 25 miles, but he is in a chariot and he's gotta go though to the Jordan River. In fact, if you know anything about the Naaman story, he bucks against what Elisha is saying because he feels like more preferential treatment should be done to him than having to go to the Jordan River. But nonetheless, he goes there and he is healed once he dips seven times in the Jordan River. Now, the other 10, and remember, only one came back, and we're kind of zeroing in on that Samaritan there, is that he had to go all the way down to Jerusalem to meet with the priest. This is a 50-mile hike, and no doubt at this time, living in a village of lepers, this dude does not have a chariot. He doesn't have a horse. He doesn't have a mule. He's making this walk, and Jesus said along the way, but he says, go show yourself to the priest. What is Jesus talking about? Well, those same priests that basically said, yes, you are leprous, congratulations, you are now being exported to your own village where you have no contact with anybody else except for other lepers, they are in the temple in Jerusalem. So when they go to Jerusalem, they have to go up into the temple mount and the temple at the center of our screen, as we zero in here, this area right here was literally called the court of the lepers. It's where you met with the priests and they said, yes, you have been cleansed. You can now be re-implemented back into community. And by the way, that was unless your skin somehow healed or someone healed you, um, there was no reason to ever go to this place because there was no shot you were getting out of your leprous community. But he goes there. And then you have this. Both were foreigners. Jesus even highlights this. Hey, only one out of 10 came back and, and it's this foreigner, this Samaritan. Both are foreigners. And the last connection is this. Both returned in gratitude. 
both returned in gratitude. For Naaman, he had to go 25 miles back to where Elisha was, and then had to go 25 miles back that same direction, because by the way, you go to the northeast to go back to Aram, Syria, uh, but the gentleman who came back, the Samaritan, the foreigner, he walked 50 miles back to where Jesus was, and who knows where he lived, but he walks 100 miles, and 50 in particular, just to say thank you. Now, what do these stories have anything to do <laughs> with us? What do they have anything to do with this series that we've been in this month called Messy Church? Well, actually, everything. Because this month, we've been talking about the reality that Central has been working to bring Celebrate Recovery here on our premises. Um, we've had lots of ministries that have reached out to people who are in very, very hard places, and we have been challenging ourselves this month to recognize that God is a God with big arms, that God is a God who welcomes them, that Jesus, in between the holy places, in between the Sundays, in between the Saturdays for him, which would have been the holy places, Jesus is going out and he is ministering and demonstrating love and grace and mercy and compassion to those who are on the outside, those who feel like that they weren't be welcomed into a religious community. And we talked about how Jesus has these big arms to welcome people in. We talked about how Jesus not only has big arms to welcome people in, but Jesus also has legs and he goes and he pursues these people. He pursues people like Levi. We talked about how the church has to have these legs. We've got to go out. We've got to have big arms. We also have legs to welcome people in to say, hey, if this is your world, if you are on this fence, if this is part of your story right now, you are struggling in some way, you feel broken, people have labeled you as one of those people, that you are welcome here that the hope and life of Jesus Christ is available for all. That for those of us who come into a church and we have to suffer in silence, as Craig and Vipka talked about last week and sharing her story about feeling like a second-class citizen, a second-class Christian because of the depression, because of the struggles, the eating disorders, the various things that Vipka was dealing with, that you are welcomed here and that when you start welcoming those kind of people into a place that is generally very nice and tidy and clean things get messy and we've been talking about the how God loves a beautiful mess because God recognizes that when people come in and interact with him that hope and a life become available to all that we are people to embrace those who are struggling and that the reality in all of this is I'm one of those people with my addiction that I used to have, I'm, I'm, I'm on that fence over there. That I'm one of those people. But the reality is, is that, friends, we are all one of those people. You see, one of the things that Paul reminds us of in Colossians is this truth that we need to revisit over and over again, time and time again. We have got to revisit this reality. Notice what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, 21 and 22. He says this. He goes, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Paul reminds us that 
for those who are now a follower of Jesus, we were once on the outside with no hope, with no shot at being part of God's family. That we were alienated from God. Paul even goes so far as to say we were enemies to God because of, because of our behavior, because of how we thought, because of how we acted, about how we conducted ourselves in the world. That we were enemies, we were on the outside. But because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ extended to us something we could not do for ourselves, we have now been brought into God's family. Yeah, I think amen works there too. I mean, there's this sense that we just get so used to this, right? It's just like, well, yeah, we hear this all the time, but do we really hear that truth? Because Paul prefaces this reality with another reality, which is central to our understanding today about how we can love and accept other people well. Notice what he says, that once we come into this relationship, what is this supposed to do? It's and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love how Paul starts this. He says, what's our response? Joyful thanks. Joyful thanks. You know what joyful thanks is? It's this very important thing. Called gratitude. That's what joyful thanks is. Paul says that's our response to the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ in our own lives, is that we have a sense of gratitude. We recognize what has been done to us. And I would argue and contend that if we can continue to be a place that is welcoming to those who feel like most churches won't accept them, that this place is too clean for them, we're like, no, 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 no. We love the beautiful mess. Like, you are welcomed here that you can be part of this place called Central Wesleyan Church, then it's got to be rooted in gratitude. It has got to be our foundation. And here is the key to all of this, is that ultimately God's desire for us is that we would be a people that would love others well. But the only way that we're going to be able to love others well is that we have to make sure that our heart, the very center of who we are, is grounded in gratitude. That this is our reality, that this is who we are. Ooh, let's give you guys a little. I'm gonna make sure I don't lose this. That would really hurt the illustration. Is that our hearts have to be grounded in gratitude. And I would just simply say this around this story that Jesus gives is that if gratitude, if we are grounded in it, it gives us the ability to love. Gratitude grounds us in the ability to love. Without gratitude, love doesn't have a shot without gratitude. See, friends, gratitude prevents us from forgetting our story. Gratitude prevents us from not seeing ourselves in others. What gratitude does is it allows us to see our stories in other people. See, one of the things Jesus was asked on one occasion, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response is, you love God and you love your neighbor. Okay, we've all heard this, right? 
That's the a brief version of it. The full version is you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 linked together with Leviticus 19, 18. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. The other way you, you can say that, the other way that you can translate that, and personally, I think it's more helpful, is and love your neighbor who is like yourself. How can you love someone else well? Now, you got to see yourself in them. So on, uh, what was this, Friday? So Friday morning, we're standing in the extra security that's at Istanbul Airport, which I am grateful for that they have extra security now. Already amazing security before. But we're standing in this long line, and I'm having a conversation with one of the people that are on the trip, and we're just talking about family. And uh, this guy was, I mean, this was, uh, I was so impressed with this group. This is just an amazing, amazing group. There's one guy in particular, he's just talking to me. He's got three kids and he's just telling me how two of his kids have just always done incredibly well. They've always excelled. They've never gotten into trouble. But he said, we had one child that just gave our hearts a run for its money. And he said, it just got so bad that, that our child ended up in teen challenge. And he said in Teen Challenge, save him. God worked through Teen Challenge to save my son. And I am so grateful for that. But he said, here's what I learned out of that as well. And this is the last thing he said. And he just said, I will never judge a parent again based on what their child does. He said, we parented all of our kids the same and two went a really great direction and one went a totally other direction. And he said, what I learned is I will never judge another parent. Kids have to be able to make their own decisions. They will make their own decisions. And he said, before this, I used to see other parents at fault for their kids' departure. What did he say there? He said, when I see people who are struggling, I see my story immediately in them. I have empathy for them because now I recognize what it's like for my story to intersect with theirs. See, that's what gratitude allows us to do. It doesn't allow us to forget our story. It doesn't allow us to forget that we were on the outside and that when we see someone who is struggling, we don't immediately see all the things of which they are not like us. We immediately connect into what are the commonalities. It enables us to love them well. And when we have gratitude as our foundation, when we are grounded in gratitude, there is a humility that we have. And humility is this word that literally means in both Hebrew and English, it means to get low. And in Greek, it always means just get low, get low, get low. And that's contrasted with another word, and that word is pride. Now, you've heard me talk about pride before. Pride is a word that literally means it's gaon in Hebrew, and it means to be high, to be tall, or to be majestic. The problem with Christians Many Christians is that there is a certain pride and a certain arrogance to who they are. They forgot their story. They forgot they're on the outside. In some cases, they go, look what I have done to my own story. Look how I picked myself up by the bootstraps. Look how I have made myself right with God. Look at how great I have become. And all of a sudden, in our pride, in our arrogance, in our self-righteousness, we start to rise above everyone and everything else. And here's what happens when we live into our own pride is that we get disconnected from our gratitude and we float off into irrelevance. 
because we are totally disconnected to our story of gratitude. We can't connect to anybody up there. Everybody else is so much below us. And in our own pride and our own self-righteousness, we won't accept other people because we don't see ourselves connected to them in any way. Friends, if we forget our story, we lose. If we don't empathize with other people, we lose. If we don't love other people well, we lose. If we get disconnected to our gratitude, we lose. But if we are cognizant of our own heart, if we are cognizant of what God has done in our own story, if we recognize that God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves, if we recognize that out of joyful thanks that we can ground ourselves in a bit of gratitude, friends, love has a shot. We have the opportunity in being grounded to our gratitude to love other people well, to be a very welcoming and accepting community because when we are grounded to love, when our hearts are grounded to our own gratitude, we have the ability to love people well. And Jesus goes, weren't all 10 healed? But only one came back and demonstrated gratitude. Seriously, one out of 10, 10%. Weren't all these people met with my grace, my mercy, my compassion, my love? All 10 of them, but only one came back? One out of 10, 10%, that's it? That's all we've got here? One out of 10? Friends, let's break that stat. Let's not be a community that functions one in 10. May we be a community where we are all that one person. And everybody who has experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ said, amen, amen. amen. Well, better said than done, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the heart of the matter. That's the thing that we have been journeying for the last four weeks through, is the ability to do this well. So here's how we're going to end our time today. We're going to end our time with communion. And I would just like to invite our ushers who are going to be helping us, our communion station people. You can come forward. Our band's going to be coming. And here's how I want us just to kind of frame our time together. When we are grounded in gratitude, God can work through all of us in a very, very powerful way. And what I'd love for us, for communion to be for us today is that as you come to the table, we believe something powerful happens in community. That when community, that happens in communion. And there is a power that is released. There is something about coming around the table and being reminded of our own story through Jesus Christ. That the reason why Jesus Christ went to a cross on our behalf, who gave his body, who shed his blood, was so that we could be made right with God. And that in being made right with God, we could now be a conduit for God's grace and mercy to flow through us to impact other people. And so this morning, in a few moments, as our band starts to lead us, 
Uh, whenever you are ready, you may come to one of the stations. And there are gluten-free stations right back here, and there are gluten-free stations up there as well. And if you need to take communion to someone, that's also at these special stations. But the rest of you, you can either go to the back, you can come up front, you're gonna grab a piece of bread, you're gonna then dip it into the bowl, and we always just say, try not to get your fingers into the bowl. You're gonna hear the words, Christ's body given for you. Christ's blood shed for you. And it's a reminder to you that God has done something on your behalf. And as we take in these elements, may they nourish us. May they empower us to be Jesus's hands and feet in the world, to put on display the very same message that he put on display. So maybe for some of us today, we just need to be reminded this is our story. We wanna ground ourselves in gratitude. Jesus, thank you for doing what you did for us. Link my heart to yours so that I can be a conduit for your grace and your mercy. And maybe though for some others of you who came here today, maybe this is your first day, you haven't been here at Messy Church, but maybe you've gotten the gist of what we've been after. Maybe you find yourself on one of these fences and this is like, this is where I'm at. Maybe when you come today, you say, dear Jesus, would you give me your hope and life? Would you just extend to me your grace and your mercy because I've got some junk I need to deal with and I need your power and the work of this community that you brought me in to lead me on a journey of healing and wholeness. However you wish to come this morning, come in gratitude. We just say that if you're, you don't have to be a member of Central, we just say, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, please come. And uh, you may come whenever you are ready and you may join in the singing whenever you want to as well. You know what the best part about being a pastor here at Central on a day like today? Is that this message is not, uh, man, we're not doing this well, so we better get in gear. This is, we are moving in such a beautiful direction that this is just a word of encouragement and reminder because this is what God is doing here. Yeah. And we wanna to continue to be known for our generosity, that we wanna be a church with big arms and big legs, a church that pursues, a church that welcomes, that says, hey, come here, experience the hope and life of Jesus Christ. And uh, just one of the tangible ways that we want to help those who are in need is that uh, Vivka wore it last week, Craig's been wearing one as well, that's a little bit different, but the shirt that I'm wearing today, there has not been a church shirt that I've ever had in my life that I've had more pride to wear than this one. And out in the lobby, these shirts are available for you today to purchase. They're $10 and all proceeds go to our benevolence fund. So 100% of the proceeds go right to our benevolence fund as a way of saying, we wanna tangibly come alongside of people who are in need and be able to help them. So I would just encourage you to grab your church shirt church shirt. You got to say that carefully. Um, we are one of those people. Jesus Christ has rescued us and we never want to get disconnected to our story because out of our story comes love for those who need to experience it. So friends, as you leave here today, today's just been a word of encouragement. Be grounded in gratitude. Don't forget your story. Find your story in someone else. And when you do that, you will be able to love them and to love them well and to put Jesus Christ on display. And as you leave here today, may you forever and always continually experience the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Grace and peace be with all of you. Have a great week. Take care.